Hey everybody, it's me, Evgeny. Before we start today's interview, I want to let you know about an event later this year, which, if you're into this podcast, will be right up your alley. It's called Data Center World, and it's scheduled for August 16th in Orlando, Florida. Data Center World is the leading conference and expo for data center and IT infrastructure professionals. It's the only industry event that delivers exclusive state of the data center research findings, in-depth workshops, 50-plus conference sessions, keynotes from industry luminaries, the largest offering of data center technology solutions, and unlimited networking opportunities. Find out more about the event and register at www.datacenterworld.com. That's www.datacenterworld.com. Hope to see you there. Another note before we get going, I want to take a few seconds to apologize for the poor sound quality the first 10 minutes of our interview with Bill Fathers. It's not ideal, but for obvious reasons, we record these interviews remotely nowadays, which means a lot depends on the internet connection, both ends of the line, and Bill and I had some connection issues in the very beginning. I decided to keep that first part in anyway, because we talked about some very important things that I thought everybody would be interested in hearing. Once again, I apologize. Please bear with a little bit of noise for the first 10 minutes. It gets a whole lot better after that, I promise. Here it is. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Data Center Podcast. This is Evgeny. I'm Editor-in-Chief at Data Center Knowledge. We have with us today Bill Fathers. He's the CEO of CoLogix. Bill, thank you for for talking to me today. Welcome, and it's uh, great to catch up. Yeah, likewise. Um, CoLogix is one of the largest privately held data center providers in North America. Um, I want to start with, um, I want to talk a little bit about your guys' experience um, through the pandemic. Um, how has the past year been for you, you know, with with the virus and the crisis and, all, and then all the political turmoil we've been going through? What's it been like? It is a year, isn't it? Just over since it all started. And, you know, I'd say the first phase, probably similar to a lot of the other data center providers, I'd say the first phase was characterized by, you know, very quickly having to adapt the business to the new model of working from home um, and of working out the right balance in our data centers uh, between uh, ensuring that perhaps we have all the right protocols in place and we can't always necessarily have you know, allow full access to customers and partners into the data centers, but equally they all have to get on and do their work. Um, so we had to sort of quickly adapt, um, and we actually found that as a business we we operate more effectively in this mode than we did perhaps previously when we spent more time physically in the office. So we found perhaps I'd say over the year that that the, the working remotely has worked better for us generally than, than working in offices generally. In terms of demand, we saw a huge spike in demand for more bandwidth. As you know, we're very, you know, over 580 carriers across our 11 markets, um, and they represent a large piece of our business. So most of our carrier clients quickly needed a lot more capacity. So we saw an you know, initial wave of upgrade requests uh, really from March, April, all the way through to June, July, and that was across the United States and across Canada. The next phase we saw was uh, only a surge in demand for from customers who were in the sort of public cloud ecosystem. Uh, that was both you know, SaaS providers, enterprises who are embracing cloud and all the big cloud providers themselves. And that theme of the big global cloud service providers you know, needing more capacity just grew and grew as the year went on. Happy to talk about that as any length required. Um, in terms of our ability to fulfill that demand, I think um, we found that the, the big concern we had 
was could we continue to construct and build both you know expansions for existing clients but but brand new facilities either extensions of current facilities or even some of the greenfield sites we've built and thanks to a lot of hard work and um really you know disciplined adherence to a lot of the COVID restrictions we have managed to actually do a record set of construction projects across our markets in the past uh, few years as well sorry first last nine months as well so construction has been obviously more complex it's taken a little bit longer it's probably a bit more expensive but it, it is all you know so we've been able to fulfill that demand basically can you try and recall the moment you realized the pandemic is here it's real and it's a big thing um and it would require some big changes to the way CoreLogix operates yeah i think there was definitely a first couple of weeks where i think lockdowns obviously we're in 11 different markets in canada the united states and all the different cities we're in across the united states and canada had very different timings and different levels of reaction um as you know here in california reaction was very quick and very sudden uh, perhaps you know on the east coast it was a bit different as well so i think it was really you know sort of by mid to late march we appreciated that it was clearly going to impact the restrictions that were being placed on people and the need to obviously make sure we protect all of our employees as much as we can. Um, you know, but by sort of mid to late March, you know, I mean, we knew that we had something very new on our, 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 you know, that we were going to be dealing with. It was probably the month of April of last year in which we spent a lot of time preparing for every eventuality. Uh, which you know, then probably by May we'd hit a rhythm, and by then I'd say you know, we, 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 since then we've just been refining what we do, as opposed to having to make radical changes very frequently. So it took us about a month, I would say, to completely adapt the business to this new model. And as um, restrictions were at various levels in different markets, did you adjust operations as you go from market to market, um, or was there kind of a company-wide policy that was implemented. Yeah, and it was a company-wide policy, and that has proven to be um, a wise move. And as you've seen, different levels of restrictions and different rules have applied in different markets, different counties, even within the same city over the past year. And so I think what employees would have found confusing would be a sort of back and forth uh, changing with policies uh, frequently. I think we, you know, the thing we probably had to fine tune the most was client visits into the data center. Obviously, we, we offer a great deal more in terms of uh, smart hands and managed services. You know, for clients who need us to do something, managed services is not really part of our business, but we slightly expanded the portfolio of things we could do to, to help clients avoid having to make the trip. And then partners and certainly maintenance contractors and construction contractors get, getting that balance right. And uh, I'd say that's, that's about what we've probably spent more than six nine months getting just right. And we feel, based on our last review with customers, they're, they're getting enough access to the data center, they don't want any more access. And obviously, we're able to complete our construction projects. And our level of community spread across the footprint is incredibly low. So we've had really no material cases of spread of COVID within the city. We have had employees, of course. Um, often because the, the, the jurisdiction they're in has perhaps had children go back to school, and that seems to have been one of the biggest causes was, was you know, getting it from the kids, basically. So, you know, we've been pretty consistent across the company. But um, obviously, I'm talking a great deal about, obviously, sales volume uh, grew 
steadily through through the end of last year. And by, by towards the end of last year, you know, our sales volume was nearly double what it was the previous year. So I think for a lot of businesses, if you're really, you know, if the business is performing extremely well, that helps. I think if you're if you're struggling, I suspect that you know having to deal with negative crises is, is more difficult. Was most of the challenges we've been facing are all good problems to have. It's it's how fast can you sell and how fast can you install, which are definitely in the category of nice problems to be solving it. And yeah, it's a very human level. If you're working for a company that by April, May, it was pretty obvious that we were financially going to be uh, you know, a business that luckily by nature of what we do, supporting so much of the you know nation's digital infrastructure and critical fabric that we were going to be growing and growing quickly. So I think you know we've been able to make sure employees have felt uh, you know engaged um, that their jobs are safe. And in fact, you know we, we need them more than ever. Uh, and obviously that's that's been a key part of our strategy. As CEO, what was the first big decision you had to make um, as a reaction to the pandemic? Yeah, I think um, at, at the sort of very human level, uh, as we're responding to. Um, you know the, the early information and the risks associated with you know community spread and the implications of getting COVID. It was thinking very hard about how we minimise the risk to our employees and how far we take that. Um, and you know, as we've always said, none of us in the executive team would do anything to ask our employees to do anything we wouldn't do. Um, so just getting the right balance there. And, and, and we spent, you know, we have you know, three hundred and twenty odd employees. I say I spoke to most of our employees uh, you know, at least once a month for the first four or five months of the, of the crisis, just to make sure that you know, we, we were staying close to what the reality was on the ground. So the first decision was around keeping the data centers uh, running, asking our employees to slightly modify their shift patterns, but obviously you know, wanting to make sure that the business stayed on. The second decision was around the balance sheet. Um, you know, when you're when you're faced with you know, the business that generates cash flow positively, so we create our own cash flow. But we all, I think everyone in April, May last year was looking back at the next six, nine months thinking, hmm, this could go one of two ways. Um, and so just quickly making sure that our balance sheet was in the state that it was actually, when you're in a fast growth company, you rarely think about the scenario where you're slowing down the growth. So we spent a lot of time preparing for a scenario in which the business would slow down. And made the decision that you know we, we will not let any employees go. That's just that's non-negotiable for us is that we would not let any employee go for as long as the pandemic was around. So we prepared our balance sheet for really any scenario that meant there was no scenario which we'd have to let anyone go for five years, basically. So we talked to our equity partners and made sure that we had sufficient debt capacity to survive really any storm. Now, as it turned out, that was a waste of time because <laughs> the, the complete reverse happened. It wasn't we didn't see a downturn. In fact, we saw a huge and have continued to see this incredible growth that surged through through the business since really March of last year. And then you said uh, in the beginning that you realized that you actually operate better in this mode. So what are what are the changes that that you know were done as a result of the pandemic that you guys are going to keep? Um, we've become much more focused. So I would say. Um, we keep our sort of internal meetings to the bare minimum and when we meet we're really crystal clear about what we're trying to what we're trying to accomplish um and you know we tend to find that we we focus on you know fewer things and focus on doing them better um we've become a much flatter structure so uh we tend to meet as a company 
I mean, every two weeks, every employee in the company is in, is in a meeting together, um, which is not all just business performance. A lot of that is about sort of cultural and, you know, welfare uh, of folk. And previously, I think we did all hands meetings once every three months, but now we do them every two weeks. They've created, you know, they have a lot of candid conversation in them, um, which is, a, you know, a situation like this requires some leaders to be, you know, candid uh, at all times. And they're much less about, you know, company roadshow or updates. It's about how things are going in every different market, what's what's going on in everyone's lives. So we keep that going um, for sure. Um, actually, you know, at the very top level, so the board meetings of the companies now take an hour and they're done by video. Uh, they used to be a day and a half and they would take people flying from all over the world. We have investors from various parts of the world um, who would come together every three or four months. We're now able to do them much more frequently and we do them in an hour and we cover the material much more efficiently as well. So I think meetings have just become a lot more efficient. Um, the counter argument is, you, you know, in theory, not so good at problem solving. If you're all in the same room, then contemporary you know, things can come up that you can solve immediately. Uh, we, we haven't found that to be a problem just yet. Um, so, yeah, we're, so, so far, I'd say so good. But I think, you know, it, it's it's been important because... We've had a lot, um, you know, we're accomplishing a great deal. The business is growing faster than it's ever grown. And therefore we have, you know, an obvious set of five or six things to focus on. And we're very good at saying uh, no to things. We don't take things on that we don't think we can do really well. And we're quite quick to try and end the conversation by saying, you know, is this actually material? Is it something that's going to make a difference? Or do we just stop wasting our time on it? And so we've got quite, become a bit more ruthless, I'd say, about not, not wasting time on things that don't, don't make a difference. So, so these things like um, holding meetings virtually, um, having people work remotely—is that something you guys are gonna keep for the long for the long term? For sure. Like you, you're not, still, you, are, did you get rid of some office space? Probably, yeah. Um, we don't have a great deal in the first place, but we know now already that the office space we have is not is not fit for purpose. It doesn't fulfil our need. Um, the, the days of people sitting in cubicles and offices doesn't is never going to happen again for us we we're thinking again about we do need to come together and collaborate um but we want to do that in environments that are you know certainly for the next year or two probably going to take into effect that you know we all want to be a bit more spaced out um and we'll be using our office space for either meeting with clients or partners um and or you know in big important meetings where we've got to think really creatively um but other than that you know, we certainly won't be likely to be enforcing the need to go to an office uh, outside of our data centers uh, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, we're feeling our way and we're quite driven by what employees think. And, you know, everyone's so, well, we're in a very interesting situation. So a lot of our markets in the United States feel like we're coming out of the pandemic. Over 55% of our business is in Canada, and unfortunately for Ontario and Quebec at the moment, it certainly doesn't feel like that, as you may know. They, they, uh, they're still in lockdown. They, you know, it still, it still feels to them a bit like it did six months ago. So we're, we're very cautious about not, you know, uh, brandishing the fact that in some markets people are, are vaccinated and not under any restriction, whereas in other markets they're, they're a little bit different. So we try, we try and be a common approach, a common approach. One thing, one piece of news I've been thinking a lot about last uh, last couple of weeks was this AWS data center bombing plot. I'm sure you've heard of it. Um, so this this um, guy, for those who maybe aren't familiar, for listeners, uh, this person was arrested and he was allegedly 
planning to blow up an AWS data center. Um, um, what, what did you think when you saw the news? As a, as you know, as a leader in this digital infrastructure space. Yeah, I think you know physical security is something that um, we we obviously take very seriously, um, and I think there are levels of threat uh, that you know you have to guard against and invest a lot of time and money doing that. Um, if you have somebody that you know is looking to commit an act of domestic terrorism, uh, as that person was, well, then the implications of that are you know a whole different level of physical security that you would need to then you know modify your entire business model around. So you know I think for everybody, it's not one of those things where you can just slightly adapt your current physical facilities and security level to, to then, you know, genuinely mitigate that threat. You, you just can't. It would You'd have to start again and think very differently about the kind of infrastructure that you build. So we're seeing that one as a bit of a black swan, you know, um, but, you know, um, if somebody is determined enough, uh, I'm sure there are many buildings across the world that, that would be vulnerable to, to that kind of attack, which is you know, very, very difficult to mitigate against. So, okay, so you're saying black swan event, um something that probably could happen anywhere and one of those things that you can't really prepare for across the board yeah obviously we've you know, for any for all of us in the industry you know the last 12 months we've obviously had pandemics we've had uh you know civil unrest in many of our markets uh we've had freak weather events um you name them fires smoke uh tornadoes texas texas, texas storms, power yeah. you know all that stuff so we, we we've proven ourselves to be pretty resilient frankly so, <laughs> add it to the list i'm sure we'll <laughs> add it to the list and we'll i'm sure we'll we'll resolve we'll you know adapt and resolve and find a way of mitigating it okay and then uh your guys's recent news the santa clara data center Kologix recently acquired a facility from santa clara from the exchange um, it's an operating data center complete with customers. Seems like a logical deal, you know, gives Cologix a West Coast presence. Good, It's a good interconnection asset. It already generates revenue, has room for expansion in the market where real estate supply is super tight. Um, is that, does that kind of summarize the rationale or did I miss anything there? Evgeny, that was a perfect summary of it. We'd spent a long time looking and that's been our, our gap in our portfolio. We, you know, we have Columbus, in the north, we have Dallas in the south, we have Ashburn in the east, and now we have Silicon Valley on the west. And for most of our customers who are starting to deploy edge architectures, certainly cloud edge is the way we think about edge at the moment. Um, many of them you know, are looking to deploy in at least two of the four markets I just mentioned. So for lots of our Canadian and North American customers, um, you know, when they're ticking off the list of places they want us to have a, a platform, uh, Silicon Valley and Santa Clara has always been the standout one that uh, we, we didn't have. Um, and so, you know, it, we, we didn't have to think too strategically about it. We've got a lot of pent up demand from our existing both hyperscale customers and customers who are part of that cloud ecosystem who we're highly confident will, will quickly absorb uh, the available demand, the supply we do have. And as we initiate the build of the 10 megawatt expansion in that facility, and it's already been zoned and, and approved. So, you know, we're expecting that we'll probably get that construction underway in the quite near future. But no, that, that sort of, and again, we're not entering Santa Clara, Silicon Valley 
with a view to taking on you know digital equinix core site that's not that's not what we're there for that for us is a strategic gateway for our cloud platform um uh, that is always going to be a part of where we are obviously our the big expansions we're driving into markets you know are in markets like montreal columbus toronto vancouver um that those are the markets in which we're deploying two three four new big data centers santa clara is a market exactly as you say it's very supply constrained it's a strategic gateway for us um and you know that that's probably you know that, that's probably going to be something that lasts us for several years and how did that deal come about um i <laughs> i called up the ceo of the exchange a couple of years ago and he was very kind enough to host me and we walked around the data center then um and uh, we both have stayed in touch we were also fortunate to acquire another excellent the exchange asset in minneapolis uh, about a year ago uh she's may may june of last year um actually that was one of the other consequences of covid was we were just about to close on that transaction we just paused for a couple of months purely to see what impact the market would have it didn't have any impact so we went ahead and closed that so we've already got great familiarity with the process of acquiring and integrating the excellent assets from, from the exchange so we and we kept in touch and obviously the demand on our side uh just kept growing and growing and obviously we we were you know made many overtures to them and uh it, it eventually we were able to to make it happen so it, it was great yeah and it, it does make a lot of difference if you've just acquired a company from a, someone else and you know how the process is worked to onboard all their clients and onboard the billing it, it's much easier mm -hmm. and so so it, it's a valuable asset obviously strategically speaking um, why did the exchange sell it, do you think? Was it just because the the asking rates are really high right now and it was a, an opportune moment? I, you know, it's, I, I never know, actually. I must admit, I don't know why, what, what, yeah, but, but yeah, good for us that they did. Um, I'm not sure what the catalyst was for them to sell it. Okay. And um, can you share how much Collogics paid for that site? Unfortunately not, no. I don't think we've, we've disclosed that. Um, so I better not. Uh, plow into it without being absolutely clear. I know. I know. We've obviously we went through a debt financing round, but I don't think even then it was totally clear. Um, so unfortunately, not at this stage. If I if I can, if any, I, I will, and we'll follow back up with you. No worries. Having having written about the data center business for ten years, I'm very used to this answer. Talk about your hyperscale slash interconnection strategy. Uh, you've said before that the strategy is to have hyperscale data centers tethered to interconnection centers, uh, sort of similar strategy that Digital Realty has been talking about. Um, you have a lot more interconnection data centers than you do hyperscale buildings, obviously. So is the plan to eventually have hyperscale site in every market you're in today? I don't know if we'll do it in every market. We see, we definitely see the demand in every market. Um, and obviously this, this sort of, we've been see a, a business that was built on the foundation of network interconnection. We then added 28, 29 cloud on-ramps. And in this last iteration, you know, we're seeing a lot of our cloud, big public cloud service provider customers deploying their own edge infrastructure. So Microsoft, Amazon, Google, their own edge infrastructure is now deploying in our data centers. That is clearly attracting a different profile of workload that, that sees value in being physically on the same campus as the interconnection hub uh, which now obviously comprises of an on-ramp and, and you know bits of Azure, bits of Google, and bits of Amazon infrastructure. So that that's what's happened. That's what's different. So we now see that customers, instead of just wanting to co-locate 250 kilowatts or 100 kilowatts worth of capacity 
in which an annex building would be fine. We've saw demand second half of last year for customers saying, I want five to 50 megawatts and it has to be on your campus. So um, the initial interest we saw was in Columbus and, and, and Montreal. Uh, and at the end of last year, the second half of last year and the beginning of this year, we've seen uh, nearly 30 megawatts of sales to customers who, who want between one and 30 megawatts of capacity in that market. And it's and all maintenance. And this is hyperscalers, hyperscalers wanting to, to put a big chunk of their like a big a node or an edge node, but not a small edge node in a tier two market, so to speak. It's two things. It's certainly in some cases it's the hyperscalers wanting to put a lot of capacity as close to the edge as possible. It's also big SaaS companies or enterprises who want to put workloads uh, next to the cloud edge node. Uh, either because their SaaS platform is something that benefits from being so close or it's an enterprise that's gone whole hog and is doing huge amounts of AI processing with databases needing, you know, that that's obviously the latency and synchronous database uh, database synchronization is, is key. So those, but the bulk of it has been so far cloud service providers, but also we're now seeing enterprises and SaaS players who are buying one to five megawatt chunks. Um, so we picked Columbus and Montreal of markets uh, where we have obviously very strong hyperscale uh, or other very strong interconnection hubs. Um, we're also now seeing that same demand in Toronto, uh, which is a market that uh, we will likely announce some further expansions in. Um, and then Vancouver is the other market in which we're seeing that slightly smaller. So that's one to one to three megawatts type of edge deployments. Whereas in Columbus, it's 10 to 30 megawatts. Montreal, it's 10 to 30 megawatts. Toronto, it's five to 10. And in Vancouver, it's one to three megawatts. Yeah. Um, I expect we're going to see the same thing in Silicon Valley. And we'll have a decision to make there as to whether we want to participate in that game. Um, and then in Ashburn, we are, as you know, we have uh, a really strategic piece of land there that we are actually underway in terms of construction. And we're building a 120 megawatt campus um, we're also obviously simultaneously creating an interconnection hub in that market. So we're building an interconnection hub uh, and we're building hyperscale capacity at the same time. Um, but that's obviously, that's a whole different conversation. But, but so, so, so far it's been, as I say, uh, Montreal, Columbus, now Toronto, Vancouver. Uh, and then I suspect we're going to see the same thing in Ashburn and Silicon Valley mm. as well. Yeah, and, and I, I do want to talk about Ashburn a little bit later as well. So, and, and you guys um, talk a lot about cloud on-ramps. That's a big part of the strategy, on-ramps to the big hyperscale clouds. Um, what, um, tell us, what effect does adding a an on-ramp to one of the major players in the market, uh, what effect does that have on your business there? Does that mean more demand from kind of the enterprise end user side or SaaS side, or does that mean um, if, say, a hyperscaler has an on-ramp in one of your data centers in a market and they see a lot of demand, does that mean they'll eventually want more capacity from you guys there to serve that demand? Is it both? Yes, <laughs> or, or both, both, absolutely, okay. yeah. So as you, maybe we just walk it through quickly. So obviously sure. the, the, the on-ramp is attracted by the carrier neutrality and the, the density of networks you've got in your, in your data center because it saves them money. So that's, that makes sense. Once the on-ramp starts to pick up and the, the on-ramp starts to attract more private network as opposed to public network traffic. So the carriers then have to upgrade their infrastructure to try and keep up with the rate of growth of the public cloud on-ramp growth. The peering traffic obviously grows quite quickly. 
Um, so it also typically tends to attract a lot of new carriers. So we found maybe a, a, an on-ramp will attract 10 or 20 new carriers in a particular market. So that ecosystem sort of further strengthens. Then, as you say, quite a few security CDM providers, SaaS providers are attracted to it um, because there's value add in, in what they do to be right, very close to it. Um, then you get, you know, as you say, a plethora of other types of platforms that are attracted. We host three of the biggest public gaming platforms in the world uh and increasingly you know they're all owned by the a lot of them are owned by the big global cloud players and they run big parts of their infrastructure on the global cloud platforms so they tend to want to co-locate as well and then as you say enterprises who are deploying edge strategies start to get sucked in and now the latest trend you put your finger on it which is if you have the on-ramps in the market so it's quite logical then for the cloud service providers the global guys to come and put their edge nodes with you or, you know, very near to you if, if you can. And that seems to be the wave of demand that we're all currently, you know, focusing on. Um, feels like the number of on-ramps in North America is is sort of reaching its peak. Um, I'm not sure there's going to be that many more uh, coming up for grabs, maybe five or seven a year for the next couple of years, and then it'll slow down because mm. it's actually, you don't need any more. Bandwidth isn't that peak. expensive. So We've reached yeah. peak, peak on-ramp. Why, I think we're getting why, there. You, why yeah. is that? Well, it's economics. It just... it's, it's sort of economics and performance. I think um, for, for many of them, many of the hyperscalers, they've reached that tipping point where deploying another node in an in even smaller market where there's even less customers, obviously there's a big fixed cost to that, but the benefit to them can be the cost savings or improved latency. But the cost savings you know, are not there if actually long-haul bandwidth gets cheaper, which it does every year. So long-haul bandwidth is getting cheaper and cheaper. And the application sensitivity, you know, has has limits. Um, you know, there's obviously if you look at if you look at where are the markets they're all in now, there's not that many markets left where there aren't there aren't an on ramp. Mm-hmm. And so of course, just... I, I could be talking out of my hat, Yevgeny. This is this is what I believe, uh, but obviously uh, the, the hyperscalers themselves will, will take a view on that. Um, but yeah, so you, you exactly articulated the way the demand cycle works uh, very accurately. That's what happens with on-ramps. And over time, some of them we've had for four and a half, five years, they just become more and more meshed into your infrastructure because they obviously they often have dozens of carriers that are their preferred partners. You have enterprises connecting directly to them. You have SaaS platforms. And then they're, of course, connecting all the way back to their own edge nodes or their own core infrastructure. So they become increasingly uh, you know, part of your core infrastructure. Now, Ashburn, you mentioned you have a big piece of land there. You can support 120 megawatt data center campus. And you said you started building there. So does that mean there is a, already a hyperscale cloud customer that's signed on? We, we, no. Um, we, we basically are trying to do three things at once. Let's just stick with two. Two things at once. So we, are, uh, we have secured um, carriers. Uh, we will probably secure cloud on-ramps in the very near future into the interconnection part of that solution. So for many people, their their dependence on one or two providers for critical interconnectivity. I mean, if you think about the scale of Ashburn's peering, for it to be one or two providers or you know that do all of that, you know, it, most people are saying they want an alternative. So we we're, we're there to service the demand for customers who want an alternative, either for resiliency or commercial leverage. Uh, so we're creating a new from scratch interconnection hub. Um, we we have had demand from the hyperscalers to basically build them, you know, an 80 or 100 megawatt built to suit on the facility. 
but we're playing the longer game. We're saying, you know, actually what we'd rather do is use, we've been very fortunate to have a huge amount of success in a lot of markets that are helping us generate a lot of cash flow. So we're able to time carefully how we do this. So the next thing you'll probably see from us is, um, you know, a sort of something like a 40, 50 megawatt initial build, which is currently underway, that'll, that'll comprise of carrier hotel uh, type interconnection hub. And it, it's obviously, we're starting it brand new, so it'll all be entirely software-based. We won't, we won't bring the old fiber model. Uh, we'll, we'll bring, you know, purely SDN interconnectivity model. Uh, we'll probably disrupt the market a bit with our commercial model there as well, um, a little bit in the way we're going to approach it. Well, you know, it's all software, isn't it? At the end of the day, if you've physically built all the interconnections you need, um, uh, and you know the world is moving towards you know increasingly software-defined networking, it does it does give it, and we're a new entrant in the market. It does give us an opportunity to rethink how, how the commercials of this should work. Um, if a customer is hosting a huge amount of infrastructure with us because it's highly valuable, but they need a thousand cross connects with multiple cloud players, uh, then and it's all being done in software. Then I think you know the fact that we're building this you know de- without assume obviously the model the old model is you build a very expensive carrier hotel infrastructure. Most of the buildings we're in are downtown. It costs a fortune, as you know, to construct in these high rise downtown buildings, and and the commercial model surrounding cross connects. Uh, is there because you need to create some cash flow to, to keep and maintain these facilities. If you're building something from scratch and it's all being done with next-gen technology, you can rethink it. Uh, and, you know, in the long run, it's about attracting as much traffic into your facility as you can. Uh, and the way you commercialize that, you know, can, can be rethought. It doesn't all have to be about cross-connect charges. So, you know, and obviously if, over time, as we're able to rebuild, you know, markets from scratch, then it, we have that flexibility. But in a lot of our existing markets, you know, you inherit a cost structure that you, you just can't, you know, overnight change cross-connect pricing. But if you're starting from scratch, then there's an easy way of doing it. Yeah. And so building an, an alternative um, interconnection point in Ashburn um, yeah. next to next to Equinix. Yeah. Uh, how? So tell me, so do, obviously you've spoken to tons of carriers, I'm sure, and, you know, um, this, is demand just kind of there? They're waiting for, you know, we want an alternative. We'll, you know, as soon as you're finished, Bill, we'll, we'll, we'll go in there. Is that what it's like? Yeah, the, as you know, the de- demand for latency sensitive workloads in that market is just growing and growing all the time. Um, we have obviously deep relationships with all of the carriers already that, that we'll be able to bring into the market in, in Ashburn. Um, and again, you know, with the cloud service providers, we already host a lot of their on-ramps for us to, to sort of mobilize and motivate them to put in new on-ramps into our facility to offer their customers diversity. You know, we're able to commercially incentivize them to do that. So, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying it lightly. We know that this is a difficult act to pull off of, of recreating, you know, uh, an interconnection ecosystem as we have recreated in, 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 created in other markets. We're taking a 10-year view, so we think it's something that will take us, you know, between five and 10 years to really, really, uh, you know, stimulate, build, and grow and grow. Um, and if, frankly, if, if what we can do is take, you know, roughly 60 to 80 megawatts market share, we'll be very happy. That, that will be, you know, for us, a great, a great result. Um, you know, something like, you know, 25,000 cross-connects, 30,000 cross-connects uh, with, you know, maybe 100 carriers. That that for us would be you know spectacular. Um, I see. And, the, yeah. At that point, you'll be able to say, okay, we've 
achieved what we set out to achieve. Yeah, and the reason we're doing it is not just to add Ashburn to our list of places we've been to because it's such a ferociously competitive market with such obvious strength in the in the incumbents who are very good operators. Don't get me wrong. It's just that if you're in our business, which is now hosting cloud gateway or, or traffic that's oriented towards the cloud ecosystem, all of our customers say, what have you got in Ashburn? And so, you know, they could contract with one of the other providers, but for us to be able to say to them, yeah, sure, you know, if you're... Like, I don't know, the fastest growing gaming platform in the world, right? So it's one of our clients and they say to us, listen, we've got an MSA. It was, really, it was really hard to negotiate an MSA. We've done it. We're in three markets with you. Could you just add Ashburn? That's, that's the sort of market for us to be in. Um, not that we're going to become, you know, the next digital in that market where when Microsoft come out with a 32 megawatt built to suit proposal, we'll be there. That's not us. We'll be interconnection focused. Our existing clients will logically grow with us into that market and we'll keep differentiating ourselves around the interconnection story. As hard as we know that's going to be, but there's so much fiber throbbing under the ground of the land parcel we've built that the lateral, as you can imagine, there's 65 carriers in the in the manhole right by our, our land, and the lateral cost for them to come into the facility, will firstly, we'll cover it. It's going to be free, but it won't cost us much to do that. So it's 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 not a bad thing to do. And I think that market needs shaking up, doesn't it? You know this. But anybody, boy, does that market need shaking up in terms of the competitive dynamic. And and you're calling it this Ashburn site, Digital Edge, to me, or and I'm sure to many people, when they hear Ashburn, they hear core. It's as, as core as it gets. And obviously, I understand how any place can be an edge for someone's network and core for someone else's. Uh, so why are you guys calling this uh, Hyperscale Edge or Digital Edge? Hmm. The, 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 the sort of edge that we're most focused on as a company is Cloud Edge, the edge of the cloud the public cloud footprints. And for us, that's as opposed to the device edge, we have a little bit of device edge business in our ecosystem, um, but it's pretty nascent. But if, so if we focus on cloud edge, uh, the goal will be to secure a number of the devices and access points that the big global cloud providers put at the edge of their network, that, namely the on-ramps and the, uh, the edge nodes. They, they are target number one for that environment. If we're not successful in achieving that, then we won't achieve our goal, as you say. That's the only thing that defines it as an edge location. That just happens, of course, that they also run the bulk of their core infrastructure in that market as well, not not for three miles away. Um, but uh, the very fact that, they, that those are the biggest in terms of you know peering traffic on ramps in the world says to us that that's what we're targeting. Um, and the workloads that are attracted to close proximity to those edge nodes is what we're what we're really. Uh, focusing on. And uh, what's next in your expansion strategy? Um, are you going to be focusing on Santa Clara and Ashburn? And for now, that's the focus, or are you looking at new markets in North America, new markets elsewhere? The the markets we're in, we're now in 11 markets. Um, I, I'd say just those markets probably provide us with runway for a long time. Um, we're, we're potentially building upwards of 200 megawatts of capacity over the next year or two across those uh, 11 markets, of which probably 60%, 70% is under contract. So those markets, you know, we haven't talked about Columbus. Columbus is, uh, we've just, we just announced our fourth data center in that market, and you know we'll be announcing our fifth in the not too distant future. So that's an example of a market where we're seeing 20 to 30 megawatts a year of absorption and, I, and that seems to be growing. Um, so across our 11 markets, you know, a couple hundred megawatts of growth over the next year or two, 
Um, I mean, last year we doubled the size of the company, so you know we're growing 100% a year at the moment, <laughs> and it, and it, you know we're, we're growing fast. So I think those markets are probably great, um, and it is always the one that got away, right? So there's always the ne- the next market in the United States. Actually, we're we're comfortable in Canada. We always look at Calgary. We always look at uh, Ottawa. We just can't get comfortable. There's enough of a concentration of networks and or cloud on-ramps that's likely to accumulate in those markets. But in North America, you know that better than anybody. So there's there's always the one that got away. Um, and there might be one or two other markets. Um, we, we, we wish we owned the Pivot building. That was a fantastic, obviously, asset that has gone to a very good owner uh, and good luck to them. That would have been a, a facility that would have fitted very well with our portfolio. Uh, and there's one or two others aren't there that are out there. But so never, never say never, but the 11 we've got will keep our investors happy for probably a long time, not sort of 10 years of growth for the, in the markets we've got. But you mm. know, n- never say never. And, and CoLogic's benefited from this trend of traditional infrastructure investors and sovereign funds getting into the data center, spa- into the data center space. You guys are kind of a, a prime example of that trend. Uh, Stone Peak Infrastructure bought the company in 2017. Um, then two years ago, you got 500 million from Mubadala Investment Company, the government of Abu Dhabi's sovereign fund. Um, are you planning to raise more capital? in this way as you continue building and expanding? I mean, in the near future, we we have sufficient uh, capital, both equity and debt, uh, to fulfill our growth our growth needs. Uh, and that's saying something, because as I said, we're, we're, we're building a lot, and obviously we're able to use debt financing for a lot of the business that we have under contract. Um, something that we're always looking at is our cost of capital, as we are diversifying into the, the hyperscale edge business, you know, we recognize that the returns and the yield you get from your interconnection type facilities um, you know, are not likely to be matched as we build these larger 32, 48 megawatt facilities. The quantum of return is spectacular, but the actual return yield return isn't great. So we're always in conversations about how we might get access to a lot of very low cost capital, uh, which you know, clearly, the, the, the big guys have created joint venture structures with sovereign wealth funds to achieve that and, and, and prevent their balance sheet from getting too much exposure to it, obviously at a much smaller scale. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the noodling. So I, I'm not teasing something that's about to be announced. I don't know the answer to that, but that's, you know, I have enough quantum of capital uh, for now, but the rate at which things are growing at the moment, I wouldn't be surprised if you know, at some point we, we consider uh, needing yet more access to capital. And then if I do, it would be great to have access to, you know, really low cost capital that's expecting, you know, core, core plus returns um, so that there's a piece of the business. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a, I won't go on, but it's a very interesting topic because the, the question is how much more would the, would the hyperscalers outsource if you were able to get your cost of capital so low that it's even cheaper than they can do it? Well, you never get it cheaper than they can do it, but it's just this sort of uh, the, the sort of demand sensitivity. If you can, if you can achieve returns at a lower price point, how much more of the market is there? And, and I think we're all, a lot of us are probing that, um, you know, a little bit to say, we, we obviously get, we get asked all the time by the hyperscalers if we want to build a build to suit for them in, in our markets. And quite often we, we say, well, this is our return expectation because it matches the return we get from our core business. And, and we're often quite a long way off what they would be looking for. But they're obviously specialized providers who, who are fine with that return and off they go. But um, yeah. something we often contemplate. 
you kind of you have to you have to give them you have to give them something that they cannot do themselves, right? Either it's either going to be faster or cheaper yeah. or in a place where you're willing to take more risk than they are, um, say like a new market. That's it. That's it. Yeah. And we, we're, we're sticking to our guns on, we do latency. That's what we do. If you, if we, if you're interested in being in a market and you can be in our campus and get better performance, that, that, you know, that, that is the business we're in. We haven't yet gone into more challenging markets where they can't do it themselves or, um, or, or try and play the price arbitrage. But, you know, we're all going to be realistic. The pricing of these big hyperscale facilities isn't going to go up over time, is it? So you, you just, as a running one of these businesses, you just have to think forward all the time about how you're going to lower your cost of capital. Okay, Bill, that's all I have. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for talking to me. Thanks, Evgeny. Glad we made it work technically as well. <laughs> me too. <laughs>